Welcome back, everyone, to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I am here with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Scott. Hello. Esteemed colleague. That's, yeah, I, yeah, it's funny. Like after I thank you very much. And Welcome. like, do you feel esteemed? Esteemed is a pretty heavy word. I feel like that's like a a psychologist with a mock turtleneck smoking a pipe or something. Yeah, I feel like more like I need something that Academia. kind of represents down and dirty, wearing keen hiking boots and jeans in the field every day, which is what I do. Right. I'm sure. I'm sure some listener can come up with a great adjective for that. <laughs> but thank you for giving me that honorific. I'll, I'm going to put that next to my wonderful, wonderful friend from high school bought me a laird ship for my birthday. So I got like one square inch of land in Scotland Ooh. and I'm a, I'm a laird. A laird. Laird. Does laird come before, does lord come before doctor or after doctor? Doctor, Doctor Lord. I don't know. I think it, when you when you have that many titles, you get to pick what order. Oh, you want. great! Yes, exactly. Sure. I just want to find my one square inch of land and squeeze onto it with one toe. Yeah, and say I'm just squatting here. This is mine. Yeah, Try and kick me off. Of I'm going to build a tiny little castle. You could put like a little gnome <laughs> house on it or something. Right. Actually, I talked about you a lot at training this last week. I was in crisis negotiation training all week, which was wonderful. And I gave because out because you said my partner is always having a crisis. <laughs> and I have to talk him down. <laughs> I'm like, I am not here professionally. This is because of an interpersonal relationship. <laughs> no, a couple. Well, Harry, who was the yeah. the uh, crisis negotiator that was on our episode about that, he was there, and then his team. So they all know about the podcast, and a couple new people that I was telling about. So I was giving out stickers and challenge coins and then, you know, regular business cards. So it was kind of a fun networking thing where it was also the the podcast was kind of brought in. And I told you that I had sketched out something for us to pitch to present for next year. And so Harry and the rest of the team was like, oh, we're going to do your introduction if you guys present next year. And I thought, oh my God, that's how there's all they have to do is take to social media and they'll have videos and pictures oh and all God. kinds of embarrassing things to play. Oh my, they could, do a pro, they could do a profile on both of us. Me, oh my more gosh. so me. Yeah. Right. So that was a lot of fun, but your ears were probably burning because I was talking about you. This week... Holly Weird Paranormal dropped an episode that we teamed up with them on. It is on the Hotel Barclay in downtown LA. So please go to their channel, their feed, and check that out. Of course, we adore them and have been so close since they're also here in the Los Angeles area. And we decided to team up on what Tammy of Holly Weird Paranormal says is the more haunted, scary hotel than the Cecil. So you guys got to go listen and see what you think. Yeah, it's a pretty cool story. So that wasn't a coincidence that we teamed up with them this week because this weekend is our Halloween Horror Nights adventure and meetup, podcast meetup beforehand. So hope you guys are coming out. We're getting into the throes of October. And wear good shoes. Meet us and wear good shoes. Scott's checklist, good shoes, ibuprofen, maybe a beer or two. He'll be good. <laughs> All right. So we shall we get into our episode this week? Yeah. I mean, like we've said before, this has been requested over and over again. And I feel like between the two of us in the last few days, we have been really doing, I would I don't know if necessarily a deep dive. I went back and listened to The Dream again, which is... Season mm-hmm. one, phenomenal. I'll talk a little bit more about that. You went in another direction 
And I want to say that when it comes to MLMs, what we're not going to give you the history. There are other podcasts out there that are series oriented and do a great job. And I highly recommend them. Even one-off episodes, they're great. We're going to talk about some of the things that we've pulled from those episodes, which relate to the psychology of how people become victimized by these scams. And they really are scams. And go ahead, sue me. You won't get anything and I'll have anything. But, you know, (laughs) I got to tell you, and I'm like, I maybe I should save this for the end, but one of the things that I have great hope for after listening to The Dream again, and I even listened to a couple of episodes several times to get some notes down, I think that shining a light on this mm-hmm. at this time in history, when we have a lot of things going on financially and economically in this country, this may be the time where we could actually do some legislation to put these companies out of business or make them go to a regular distribution uh, model or franchise model instead of victimizing lower income individuals. And I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful. I'd love to know what our listeners think because there's, there are several podcasts out there talking about it right now. And of course Mm -hmm. the Lula rich documentary, which is jaw droppingly disturbing and entertaining at the same time. Done so well, done so beautifully four comprehensive episodes is exactly what it needed. It was very, very good. But yeah, I think this time, you know, it's kind of dropping into this era of podcasting and investigative journalism and documentaries where you are seeing change in some areas and you are seeing these spotlights being shown on some situations or experiences where it was just really kept very insulated or people didn't understand it. Yeah, it was just, pocketed information. Like there was bits yeah. of it here and you were like, oh, that's crazy. But nobody was really talking about it, even though there were some major lawsuits, like right. federal internal revenue service level investigations and some real skullduggery, I think, as it as it comes out over mm-hmm. over time. But I will, going along with what you're saying, I really believe that our wonderful younger generations, our millennials, our Gen Z, our Gen Y, are like way more realistic about where our economy sits right now as opposed to the post-World War II mentality that the boomers still think has legitimacy, which it doesn't. Mm -hmm. We have nothing to support that anymore. So maybe... The younger people are less willing to have the wool pulled over their eyes, even though I think most of the victims are younger women, as we'll mm-hmm. come to explore. So we wanted to encourage anybody that's listening to us today, if you have not listened to it, please go look at the wonderful podcast, The Dream. It's produced and hosted by Jane Marie and Jan- Dan Gallucci. It's beautifully written and constructed around a narrative that leads you through this incredible labyrinth of how this business model, quote unquote, developed and how it victimizes people. In a way, I think it would be like the perfect precursor to watching Lula Rich. If you can listen to it on one and a half speed, you can speed through all 10 episodes Mm -hmm. and then watch Lula Rich. I just think it's jaw dropping on how it exposes the MLL phenomenon and how It's not only taken root in America, but really around the world. Yeah, I thought it was very good. The dream a little too snarky for me on some points. I would have been I would have preferred for her to play a little bit more middle of the road. But (laughs) that's coming from 
me, but it's very good. I would also point folks towards the great series that Rebecca is doing right now on dialogue. She is doing this whole cult-related month-long talking to various people around this concept of MLMs and individuals comparing some of the psychology and structure to cults, which is a lot of what we're going to look at today when we talk about the psychology of that, what works in essentially both arenas to carry on. Please go and check out her episode. She has a ton of episodes with other experts on cults that she has talked to in previous years. But we really want to drive home that we are going to treat today's talk as victim-centered rather than victim-blaming, because I think this is another one of those areas where, I think we talked about this with pageants, where you know we could kind of just sit back on our couch or with our laptop in our lap or or watching the television and poke fun and blame and say, oh my God, what is wrong with that person? And that's not what we want to do here. We want to help explain everything. Just like when we try to explain the psychology and the motivations for offenders, we also want to talk in those ways about people who quote unquote fall for things like this. But we know that there are people that are listening us to us right now that could be people who invested in direct sales marketing or was part of an organization like this. I'll tell you that I was in a little bit, but you know it impacts everyone differently, but we're going to be very mindful of that. We don't have any trigger warnings for today. We're not talking about anything that should implement, you know, any worry as far as trauma goes. But I want to get into this in talking about some terminology because I think, you know, things get thrown around and and especially in the world sort of a true crime where we're like, wait a minute, pyramid scheme. So I thought I would address that right off the bat. Let's start with Ponzi scheme. Ponzi scheme is going to be a situation where there is a knowingly fraudulent investment scheme in which there's an investor and they are going to pay returns on investments from capital derived from new investors rather than from actual legitimate investments or profits that they promise. So it's going to be where, hey, let me entice all of these new investors by telling them about these really abnormally high, just incredible, amazing profits they're going to make in a really short amount of time. So the fraudulent investor is profiting either by charging fees on the investments from these folks or simply just taking their money and running at some point. Ponzi schemes generally fall apart when there isn't enough new capital to pay all of the new investors that are coming in, that ever-growing pool of people. The Ponzi scheme is... Yes, name for a person, Charles Ponzi out of Boston, Massachusetts, who in the 1920s launched a scheme like this that guaranteed investors a 50% return on an investment in postal coupons. And although he was able to actually pay back his initial group of backers, the scheme completely dissolved when he was later unable to pay back new investors. So... It's very specific and limited to the world of investing, but you can sort of see how this is going to mimic a lot of what we're going to talk about today. 
So while we're here recommending podcasts, I would highly advise you guys, if you haven't already, go and listen to Swindled's newish episode on Bernie Madoff. It is such a wonderful, clear and concise explanation of the case. And of course, he always does such a great job of really letting you feel the impact of the devastation suffered by the victims. So it's it, it's just phenomenal episode as they all are. One of my favorite podcasts. That's Ponzi Scheme. So we got Ponzi Scheme and we're going to sort of leave Ponzi Scheme behind, but I thought we needed to lay that, that groundwork a little bit. And let's move on to Pyramid Scheme. So these take many forms. The majority of them are casual, kind of low-level stuff. Do you remember luck chain letters? I remember those from even from <laughs> elementary school. Okay. Yeah. What do you remember about them? Because I, I, I asked just, a couple of people like, what do you remember about these? Okay. So I remember it being spooky because some of the ones that were sent when I was a kid a very long time ago was not only if you forward this to 20 people, you will you know win a million dollars or you'll have incredible luck. If you didn't continue it, you would die. That's what we were all so scared that we were going to get. And I just remember like all the parents were like, oh my God, who is sending this to our kids? How is this? You know, because every parent had to explain it over and over to their kids. Right. Stupid. Yeah, I remember that too. I remember getting one and it was, you know, generally they have these sort of themes of like, you're going to have bad luck if you don't send this on to people or you're going to have good luck. But geez, yeah, when it starts to get to, or or you'll die if you don't do this. It's a very odd thing. It it actually can be traced back to the 1900s where chain letters started. They were a little bit more religious-based back then, kind of trying to pass messages and the word right. on through writing letters. And then in the 30s, there was a send a dime chain letter where we start to see kind of the beginnings of, you know, does this sound like an investment fraud? But Let's make money by if you send a dime to a couple of people, then your name will be on a list and then you'll get all these dimes sent to you and you only had to send two dimes out. So it's that that definitely started to tread into the territory of being fraud because now there's money included. It wasn't just for fun. And was it considered mail fraud for sending money or did it not meet that criteria? I don't know. I I didn't see anything about it rising to that level where people were getting in trouble for it, but I think it got the attention probably. I just don't think it neatly fit in anywhere of any laws that were on the books. And then another one as I'm doing all this, which I could have gone down this crazy rabbit hole. I think this is so fascinating, but... I remember in the early 90s getting a panty chain letter. Do you know what those are? (laughs) And I have one. I'm going to read it to you. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's also on my list of words I really don't need to hear. I don't like panty and... Okay, I'll call it underwear. Yeah. Underwear is better. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like panty Panty. either. Panty. Okay, so I remember getting this letter... I don't even know where from. Like, it's sort of crazy. I wish I could know, like, who sent these... Okay, so a panty letter would go something like this. This is a pretty panties exchange. A what? That's right. A pretty panties exchange. Send one pair of new pretty panties, preferably sexy ones, to the person listed as number one on the list below. 
Then move my name to number one and yours to number two on the list and send a copy of this letter to six of your friends you think would love to participate. This is not a chain letter. It's just for fun. If you cannot do this in the next five days, please notify me as it is not fair for those who have participated. A manila envelope will... They will be pantyless now. (laughs) No. They will be bereft of panties. I'm sorry, Scott. I need to make this clear. You buy new ones. Don't send your own. (laughs) Well, that's... Look, there's a whole other market for used panties. (laughs) Oh, I know. goes into our paraphilia episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Orange is a new black if you want to see making money off of warm panties. Okay. Letter goes on. A manila envelope will mail the underwear nicely and you'll receive 36 pairs of pretty new underwear. It's fun to see where they came from and the variety you will get. Remember to include, include your size with your name and address. Seldom does anyone drop out because we can all use new pretty underwear and it's really fun. <laughs> I just wish everybody out there could see your face as you're trying to get through reading this. It's hilarious. (laughs) Remember, 36 pairs for the price of one. I challenge you to find a better bargain anywhere else. So you had to put your size on it, right? Oh, yeah. You had to put your size on there, which this example does have the sizes on there. So there's number one, number two. And then you move it along. So weird. I did not have this recollection until we started typing into this episode. But there was also one a few years back, which still pops up almost every holiday season now, is the Instagram Amazon one. Have you seen that? Yeah. I just like, I completely tell people to take me off the list. Yeah. And so uh, this is going to be a theme today, but so much easier with social media, right? I mean, you can just forward, literally forward this to some people. But a lot of things we see in social media follow this model, right? There's the, if you don't send this tweet to 20 of your friends, you know, Jesus isn't going to love you anymore or like whatever. There's sort of these social media chain letters. Or or here's a a sick baby on life support, you know. How many likes? I bet you won't even forward this, which is just weird, like spiritual terrorism. I think it's just so weird. I mean, what does it what does it mean? Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. No, it totally is. And there's like some meme out there that's like, oh, Jesus knows if you're not forwarding that post. But yeah, the the Amazon one is basically you send two gifts under you know, five or 10 bucks to people. And then you'll get all these gifts in return. And I love when that comes up because people are like, this is fucking illegal. People stopped. It's a pyramid scheme and you're doing it through the U.S. mail. So just stop. Some early pyramid schemes early uh, in the eighties, we're starting now to get closer and closer to what we're talking about here, but would be something like they call airplane games or gifting table games. And it there's different versions of it with different sort of themes to it. Like the airplane games would have pilots and passengers. Well, I'm going to use the example of the gifting table games because I think a lot of people saw this play out in the HBO documentary Murder on Middle Beach. Did you watch that, Scott? No, didn't see it. Okay, so it follows the unsolved murder of a Connecticut woman. The film is made by her son. And the murdered woman was one of many fluent women that were involved in these gifting table games, including her own sisters and aunts and and friends. But the way that it goes is that you have to be invited to these parties. 
And then you're basically part of a four-level pyramid with tiers. And the tiers are named appetizers, soups and salads, entree, and desserts. And if you're a new person invited to the gifting table party, you join at the appetizer level and you're required to bring a quote-unquote gift of $5,000. So older members or members who have been there longer would then move up the levels as new members were recruited. And the person at the top is at the dessert level. And they collect all of the new member money at the party. So for instance, if eight new people show up to a party, each having $5,000, they gift this to the dessert person at the top of the pyramid, essentially. The dessert person takes her $40,000 and then leaves the table. And then the two participants in the entree position then split up the gifting table and they move up to their own dessert level. So there's this idea of the dessert person's moving on, but then there's new people always coming in. That's completely like airplane. And there's nobody that was doing airplane that didn't, was clueless about how illegal it was. Like everybody talks about it, even in the interviews, they knew it's like, no, you knew at some point it was all going to peter out and somebody was going to be stuck. Sure, sure. But hey, I was making money. What do I care? Like, ooh. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I think the woman they interview in the dream was like, oh, I knew eventually we'd get down to some peasant in some third world country. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. That, that choice of words was pretty interesting. I know. I know. So this is essentially how uh, a private within the family or within friend circle pyramid scheme would work. Although you have to keep recruiting people. So then it sort of gets outside that tight inner circle. But by definition, A pyramid scheme, also called a chain referral scheme, is a fraudulent business model in which new members are recruited with the promises of payment tiered solely to their ability to enroll future members in the scheme. So as the membership pool expands exponentially, of course, further recruiting becomes impossible and then the the business falls apart. It just, it's unsustainable. It can definitely appear as a legit multi-level marketing business. However, the pyramid schemes involve almost no legit sales. It's just about bringing new people in. Instead, earlier investors are paid from the incoming funds of subsequent investments instead of true profits. And sometimes that means that it's just the people involved who are buying the product. And that's where this can start to get a little dicey that we'll see. And that's where they even you can see these... I mean, certainly in The Dream and in Lula Rich, they do fast cut edits of all of these people and how they're taught. How do you answer it when somebody says this is a pyramid scheme? And they, what is that term? They they always describe it. No, we are direct sales and we are multi-level marketing. Pyramid schemes are illegal. We are, a is it ladder instead of a pyramid like we're this we have yeah, a ladder that structure. sounds right something like that basically yeah. just direct sales i i think they okay. do use that that verbiage but this is illegal and it's illegal because the model that it's based on will inevitably fail and it leaves the bottom people high and dry so they it, there's got to be someone at the bottom and in pyramid schemes there's a big bottom and we're talking like 99% of the people are really at the bottom and they are not getting in returns no matter what they do. They're not able 
to make profits. And so the whole thing kind of falls apart like a house of cards, except you get the people at the top kind of running away, laughing all the way to the bank. The Federal Trade Commission is in charge of investigating of businesses that could be pyramid schemes. And then other federal agencies, if there's something that's criminal, like tax evasion or other associated white-collar crimes, somebody like the FBI could then investigate those criminal acts if they're associated with it. But really, the FTC is who's in charge of sort of making sure that these businesses are playing by the rules and the laws, and you can report potential pyramid schemes to the FTC, and then they'll investigate and decide. When you compare them to Ponzi schemes, usually they offer the victim opportunity to make money by recruiting more people into the scam. So remember with Ponzi scheme, it was just investing. So you were hoping that somebody was going to invest for you, just kind of this one point person. One of the things that I would say, or I'd want to offer too, which is fascinating about Ponzi schemes and Bernie Madoff's setup in particular is that at that level, there's not a person who has a lot of money to invest in those kinds of schemes, particularly Bernie Madoff's Ponzi, that doesn't know what's happening because you have financial advisors. You don't. You know that it's not possible to get a guarantee of 17% per year, as opposed to maybe like a really high-end, really well-functioning mutual fund that gets anywhere from 12 to 17% on average, but generally in the 12 to 15% range. At least that's the way it's been explained to me, especially so in terms of what Bernie pulled off, they really shake a lot of fingers at everybody that was involved because people knew it. They just, but they were saying, well, I'm not going to be the one that gets shorted. I'm going to get my money. And then as people started figuring things out, they were slowly pulling their funds out of his grasp. So meaning like, the middlemen sort of brokers, because, you know, I'm sure grandma who entrusted her person who trusted Bernie didn't know what was happening necessarily. I think right. there are some they, people did, but. Right. And they may not even have been completely aware of where those investments went beyond right. them because right. he was managing a lot of different funds. I mean, it's it's a whole other thing that just, and that that mini series was fantastic as well with Robert De Niro and Michelle Pfeiffer. I highly recommend mm. Because you really see what a, a sociopath he is. I mean, the guy was just yeah, clearly had no no compunction about it at all. Right. And so just one last thing, the Securities Exchange Commission are the ones who bring actions against the perpetrators of both Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes. And whistleblowers are absolutely essential in catching this kind of fraud. It takes somebody that finally says something. Right. And one of the things that I would want to add in here is talking about like, well, I don't want big government. I don't want people telling me what to do. These agencies within the federal government actually protect your interests. They protect your investments. And just as like, as much as people want to hate on the IRS, like when everybody's paying their fair share, it actually works for the most part, right? right. Depending on what state you're living in. But when everybody's not paying their share and you've defunded the government and the government doesn't have enough IRS agents to get through the backlog and you actively look away from the higher end people like the billionaires who are not paying anything in taxes, mm -hmm. you've got this shortage. Like, so who are they going to go for? They're going to go for the people on the bottom rung 
that are right. easy to get instead of chasing the billionaires. Anyway, the low just, hanging fruit. <laughs> exactly. Very low hanging fruit. So let's so, transition to MLMs. Do you yeah, have you any... said you had one. You you first, and then I'll tell you what my okay, okay. Uh, experience was. When you didn't, I'm trying to think if you knew me then, but no, I think this was previous to us being friends. But I was a huge scrapbooker. I don't know if you remember that or if I, I had do. Yeah, I've seen your stuff. Sat it's you great. down You're... and made you look at my scraps. <laughs> and uh, no, I remember. No, you never for it, but I loved seeing it because you were one of the fancy ones. And I wonder if you had like a cricket, like one of those home cutting things, because you had all the like special applique right. letters and borders and stuff. But I didn't realize that was part of a, a cult you were in. Yeah. Do you know, actually, like this pegboard that my whole little podcast studio is in now used to be all the racks for all my scrapbooking shit. Oh, wow. (laughs) This is where I have come. But I actually, I didn't realize kind of that I was a consultant for Creative Memories, the scrapbook company. And I, I think I fell into the cat. Well, I know I fell into the category of the person who did it just to sort of sustain their hobby. Because I could get discounts. And so I was my own customer and made my own quotas just because I was super into it. So it was never anything. I never held like a party for myself because those were things that the consultants did. Um, I had a couple friends at the police department that sort of got into it. And so every once in a while, they would put in an order with me. But other than that, it was I was my only customer. And but, I was totally so. It wasn't MLM. It's it is. Oh, it was MLM. Okay. Definitely. Like I could have recruited people to be underneath me, and I guess I was under. Actually, so I was underneath this woman who lived in the area, and this was so. Creative Memories, like a lot of them, was a Mormon-based company, and I remember she was a Mormon woman and she had her van because she had six or seven kids. And I remember the license plate on this big van saying like something about loving creative memories or something like that. But she would have parties and sometimes it was fun to like go and like, okay, we're going to have a all day scrap party where people just get together and scrapbook together. I was always the youngest person, but you know, you could get some interesting deals and discounts and stuff like that. But so I did that for a little bit and then it just, you know, with the digital age, it kind of stopped and I loved it because it was the the only creative thing I really did was scrapbooking. I wasn't too much of a creative person. Well, it's um, also like very tactile, which yeah. I, mean, I love how we can create electronic versions of that, but missing the tactile stuff, like if you, when you allow yourself in this very busy world we live in to go do something that's tactile, whether it's gardening or you know, like I had people over to make cookies one Christmas and we just had a blast yeah, because there yeah. we had all these different cookie cutters and decorations and stuff that that appeals to us. It appeals to like that sort of it's very calming. It's why many people are actually calmed down by cooking like it's yes. very meditative for them. Totally does that for me. And I definitely want it, you know, with as much as I love to travel. And I, I did one for a lot of life. Some of my favorite scrapbooks are like from the police department and my days in the academy and things like that, because they're just those pictures. I really don't have digital versions of those, but it's so cool to have have those memories and let my daughter look through, you know, some of that crazy stuff. But other than that, I do have friends that I support in right. buying stuff. I have my Young, young living. living oils here, <laughs> which 
I feel like you guys are hearing all of my justifications and cognitive distortions right now. I don't believe that these like cure cancer are going to keep me from, you know, alive or anything like that. Like some people think they smell freaking great in my house, lavender, lemon, and peppermint. Love them. I think I gave you some before. Yeah, you gave me four four thieves. Yeah. (laughs) But they're, since they're not synthetic, I have terrible allergies. And so these make my house smell yummy. And then Rodanin Fields, I swear to God, this is the only thing that has controlled my skin in my entire life, no matter how much I've been to a dermatologist. I cannot so, believe you were advertising for these companies. I'm freaking sold. I am. Uh, it is for me. I am at a weird ass stage in my life where I go to the dermatologist both for acne and for Botox. So it's a fucked up crossroads yeah. that I am not cool with, but this product works for me so hey look if it works for you that's i mean <laughs> i just wish they would go to brick and mortar and not you know take advantage of people and be more be. transparent what's that's what's weird i think they used to be like in nordstrom's and stuff and then they stopped and were like hey let's just take advantage of housewives that want to sell this well yeah house. i mean they can make more money and they don't have to that way if you're doing it that was the other thing about the securities and exchange commission is like when you're doing multi-level marketing you don't have to report what your your sellers and retailers are doing as opposed mm-hmm. to like I think that was one thing things in the dream they talk about that the the sales report from Rodan and Fields was one page. Yeah. Come you know, on. That which doesn't make any sense at all. I feel like our sales report would be more than that and we don't have it's, crap. <laughs> we got nothing. But look, a legitimate MLM uses those profits from downstream sales to pay for bonuses to recruiters. So we have these terms like upline and downline, which are used over and over again whenever you're hearing anybody talk about this. In multi-level marketing, the upline is the person who recruited a distributor into the organization. The upline is moving upwards. And you're also known as a sponsor. The people above this person in the organization are the upline are usually given names that, in my opinion, indicate sort of a false sense of accomplishment. It's like sales rep, sales director, creative director, creative consultant, you know, big boss, blah, blah, blah. Level, sparkly, whatever. Exactly. An MLM distributor's upline receives compensation based on their sales, as well as the sales of the people that are underneath them in that ever-spreading organization and foundation that is not a pyramid scheme, apparently. So there's a lot of uh, names that are used really to, to do this. They're almost interchangeably. You can find them on the websites, but there's like, um, a problem in some of them because they just toss terms around that they're not allowed to use. Like you can't call yourself an esthetician, a nutritionist, a physical trainer, because those all require either certification or licensure in some states. But many of these kind of MLM properties and products will tell people, you know, you call yourself, okay, well, you can't say esthetician, but you can say a beauty consultant. Right. So more appropriate terms. Ugh, I mean, I even hate admitting that they're more appropriate. <laughs> can include contractor, independent contractor, direct sales associate, direct sales representative, distributor, independent distributor, enthusiast, member, club member, team member, network marketer, preferred customer, promoter, health promoter, blah, 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 blah. I also kind of hate that network sales. Like network sales to me just sounds just as shady as any of these other things. So that's upline. Oh, go ahead. You're talking about like what you can't call yourself. It's interesting because I was in a Young Living Facebook group for a while where they would have like, oh, here's a nice scent like for fall or whatever. So they would have recipes, if you will. 
And then, but people could ask questions like, oh, I have this problem. What do people recommend to cure it? And then, you know, one of the the admins would come on and be like, okay, we can't cure anything. Let's not use that language. We're not FDA approved. You know, it was like constant managing of people saying what they wanted to say. <laughs> Which, how timely is that right now? I mean, there you can go on message boards. I mean, Reddit has unending collections of people on social media asking how to use their bootleg ivermectin. You know, no. we got we got it, all the horse paste from the vet. How, should I inject it? Should I eat it? How does it work? It's like, Please, oh my Please, do goodness. all of the above. <laughs> oh. So look, the downline, the other term as opposed to upline is the distributors that another distributor has recruited to the MLM or the direct sales organization. The sales rep that recruits the individual into their downline receives compensation based on that person's sales as well as their own. But like you were saying, what ends up happening is that that person who has now been bumped up, they do less and less sales and actually get sales or they get money and compensation from all of the product that is purchased from their marketers below them, which may not represent accurately any sales. It's about what they buy in order to sell. And they may have, you may have five people on your downline that have garages full of stuff that they've never been able to sell, which is illustrated beautifully in Lula Rich. Mm -hmm. So then there's another term called onboarding. It's bringing people into that downline. There, there are tons of open source web pages associated with many MLMs that describe all sorts of techniques for onboarding people. And the information in these pages spans a wide range of activities. They include like hosting parties, doing outreaches to gyms, to schools, all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. to always try and find a new untapped market. One of the things that they do really beautifully in the dream is they show you the numbers can't ever work out. Like right now with Rodan and Fields in their promotional material, they say that they have 44,000 distributors in the US. And that's to sell lotion, face products, and soap. Right. When there's already, there's only like, I think 20,000 combination of Walgreens and CVSs in the country. So that's clearly not a balanced market at all, but somehow they manage to stay afloat because probably some people tap out and sure. then other people take their product, whatever. It's, it's, there's always somebody that's going to make it work. Like so, literally when you look at the numbers, the population of this planet could not sustain what they're trying to promise. Exactly. And, but they, but they just drill that promise in. So now the granddads or grandmoms of this movement were Tupperware, Avon, and Mary Kay. And it didn't start with them. There were other ones that it started with. Once again, go back and listen to The Dream. It's really beautifully constructed. But the big ones that took it huge and have lasted have been these three organizations. They all follow the same model of relying on what are assumed to be the way a woman manages her home, work, and socialization, which is problematic already because it's basically working on a framework that is patriarchal, that is hierarchical, male-centered, male-dominated, and sees women as marginalized. So in 1946, a food storage system made from a durable, flexible, and easily clean plastic was named Tupperware after the developer Earl Silas Tupper. Now, because of the flexibility of the lids, the user is able to burp the seal of the container. So you push it down, makes a little 
sound <laughs> and all the air comes out, which supposedly helps decrease spoilage timeline, which maybe, I don't know if okay. it actually does that or not. Tupper then patented the burping seal, which became the trademark of the item. It was used in the commercials. It was always the big thing when you saw it, Tupperware parties. And I've been to Tupperware parties. I have a bunch of Tupperware, although I've got other stuff that's better now. The success of the product soared through what was then called sales through presentation, which led to what became known as Tupperware parties. But that party was developed by Brownie Weiss, who was a former sales representative of Stanley Home Products, which was home cleaning, like mm-hmm. vacuum cleaner. So she was she was a marketer and salesman herself, which was very rare to have women in that role. Most door-to-door salesmen were men. But then there was a huge thing that happened after World War II. Women during the war had taken a lot of jobs in production and were bringing home money in order to support their families. And there were all these communities that were built up around childcare and, you know, how I mean, it was really kind of an amazing opportunity for women, but corporate America really screwed them after World War II because all of these soldiers were coming home and they decided to kick all the women out, no matter how competent they were, right. to give men these jobs. So that really imp- impacted the economy of what women were bringing in and spending. And this was a perfect opportunity to kind of go for this untapped market of women was Tupperware and Avon. And Brownie Weiss really understood how to speak to women and appeal to them on an emotional level as homemakers and sort of outlining, you know, don't be ashamed that you got fired. Be proud of what you do as a mother, wife, homemaker, parent, et cetera. And you have skills now from the workforce. So here's an opportunity for you to do it all. Exactly. Now, There's a quote from Avon's page, which is hilarious because you go to Avon's page and it's just like sparkly and, you know, doesn't touch on any of the problematic business models. But it says in 1886, 34 years before women in the U.S. earned the right to vote, Avon's founder, David H. McConnell, helped give them the chance to earn an independent income. He didn't set out to create a beauty company. In fact, McConnell was a traveling book salesperson who offered fragrance samples as an additional perk to his female customers. He saw that these women were more interested in the free perfumes than the books. Since women had a passion for his products and loved networking with other women, McConnell was inspired to recruit them as sales representatives. From a small New York City office, McConnell himself mixed the company's first fragrances. This began Avon's long history of empowering women around the globe. So if you wanted to take that whole paragraph and break it down, it's pretty misogynistic. And I would love to say like what's really going on is... Probably women home alone during the day didn't want to open their door to a weird dude. So if you get other women to do it for you, you're going to make more sales. I would think so. I would think so. That's a big part of it. It's also just sort of like, how, what a what a little dig. They didn't want to buy books. They wanted to smell pretty, which is right. so insulting. Reading is hard. Right. Mm, math is hard. Avon is the oldest direct sales company that's still in existence, and it's the second largest MLM company after Amway. Amway is another whole crazy thing. Yeah, Avon previously used the direct sales business model until they transitioned to a multi-level marketing structure in 2005. And it's estimated that there are 6.5 million Avon reps in countries around the world selling the product as well as bringing recruits into downline structures. Now, I remember being in high school and, you know, some of my... Female friends would have the catalogs and it's like, okay, well, 
buy some lotion or something, which interestingly enough in Alabama, yeah, interestingly enough in Alabama, Skin So Soft, Avon Skin So Soft was huge. Everybody was buying it because it was good for keeping mosquitoes away. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it it was good. It wasn't like that chemically smell that you would get from, you know, the poisonous ones you put on. So then we go to really the one that is is really dominating the market right now, and that is Amway. Amway really deserves its whole own podcast. Yeah. I mean, it really does. All I'm going to say is, because I would think that most people listening here know that Amway is owned by the DeVos family. Betsy DeVos was our former Secretary of Education, who is only for homeschooling and for private schools. I mean, she's comes from an incredibly dogmatic background. She was completely, completely ill-equipped for that job that was placed by our previous administration. Her brother or her brother-in-law, another DeVos, was very high up in some American military skullduggery and Mm -hmm. runs a private military sort of uh, mercenary organizations, what we call black ops. Mm -hmm. Won't even go into that. But Amway my personal experience, as you gave yours, was I had a friend growing up that lived on my street, and his dad came back from the army in the late 60s, and they were convinced they were going to become millionaires from selling Amway. And they had an entire garage full of this stuff, and nobody would buy it. Like Everybody was so uncomfortable because they were just really pushing it. And And it got more and more desperate in a way. And like, I don't really even know what ended up happening to them. But I just remember walking past and seeing this garage all the way to the ceiling of boxes of detergent and soap and stuff. I was going to say, what do they even sell? Because I know the name Amway, but I I couldn't tell you a product that they sell. A little bit of everything, but it's mainly soap. I remember it being like detergents and all sorts of cleaning products. And now they've branched out into supplements and like ah. protein shakes and who knows. I mean, I think that they kind of shift as where they see the market goes over the years. Hmm. Yeah. The wellness industry is also, of course, involved. As I was saying about Amway branching off into these other areas, there's Herbalife is one of them yeah. that we'll talk, we're not really going to talk about, but that was all shakes. And I remember like a lot of moms when I was in high school all went on Herbalife and lost a lot of weight. Well, mainly it was like a powdered smoothie with a ton of fiber and caffeine in it. So everybody was jacked up on caffeine. <laughs> crapping and everything crapping out. themselves, right? But it worked. Yeah, um, no shit. <laughs> so that's wellness for you. There are three real problems that are caused by MLMs. They often make false claims about their products. And the National Council Against Health Fraud wrote a position paper on multi-marketing of health food products or health products. That's also why you would see in your particular example of being on social media where somebody would jump in and go, no, 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 we don't cure cancer. We These are therapy. This is aromatherapy. Right. But if you go deeper onto Reddit, like the people that support Young Living in particular, they really do believe that they've got the cure for everything oh, yeah. in essential oils. And it's it's really sad because I've seen people saying like, I'm going to put this, you know, full strength rosemary and tea leaf oil on my genitals. I'm like, hon, that's going to burn through Sweet. you real bad. There's probably a recipe for COVID if you go on there. Oh, I'm sure. I'm yep. sure. I'm sure it's 
worked really well to clean out the intubation <laughs> tubes, maybe. So some MLM sales reps actually impersonate licensed providers like physicians, practitioners, mental health professionals. Yeah, a lot of these people present as something that they're not. Like I'm a, some people say that like they have a doctor in that, a doctorate in natural medicine. And we only use essential oils where if you talk to a legitimate naturopath, they'll say, look, we're about prevention and we're about changing your lifestyle and looking at what your body needs. But if you break your leg, we're not going to come out and shove some peppermint in your nostril. (laughs) You know, they're just not going to do that. You know, one of the things that the dream does really well, too, is they bring in an expert, Stacey Bosley, who's an economics professor. And she says that it drills down this idea that people, even regardless of your income level, people don't want to feel like they're missing out on something. They don't want that FOMO. And if suddenly they're seeing on social media that like this person's making this much money and they're making this and look, they're going on a vacation. I want to go too. you know, they you get pulled into that. And we don't have enough data, actually, because so many of these companies hide what actually the sales represent. But it's pretty clear right now, just from inference, what's going on is that many people are really losing a lot of money. And certainly, I'm not going to say that it's about one gender falling for it more than another. It's not that. It's about like a crime of opportunity, I feel like, like you've described so many times is these people who are victimized by these companies, the companies see this, they set up looking for the crime of opportunity of going into low income populations and working moms, single moms, and tell them this idea that you're going to be able to change everything just Mm -hmm. by working a couple of extra hours a week. So there are some fallacies that go on that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But, you know, you you have problems in logic fallacy when you really don't understand that you're going to be spending money doing this that you're never going to make back. That's actually how it works is you're going to buy all this product or you're going to have to spend on your gas money going and driving and hauling these things up multiple flights of stairs. And one of the big drivers is what we call loss aversion that the idea that people feel losses way more strongly than they feel gains. And we will seek to do things to distract us from looking at the avoidance of the truth of what that loss means. So I feel it much more strongly. I mean, I'm not willing to tolerate the distress of understanding that this is a scam and I've been scammed. So in many ways, what this professor said, Dr. Bosley, is that what happens is that they're overweighting small probability events. And the perfect example of that is buying a lotto ticket. Now, a lotto ticket is only going to cost you $1 or $2. And you think, well, somebody's going to win. And it's true. Somebody does win, just yeah. not as much as you think that they do. But yeah. in the world of MLMs, people keep thinking, well, I could do that. I'm looking at all these examples of why wouldn't I be able to do that? Of course I can do that. So tell me, tell us more about the mark. Right. So just using the term, the mark makes me think back to our con man episode. And like you were just saying, it's not that people are stupid. It's who is being targeted by the companies at the company level, right? Like, I'm not saying that 
your aunt who sells this thinks you're stupid and wants you to join. She just wants to share what she's doing and what might be working for her with you on the front end because she's excited about this new adventure. But then as it keeps going, you know, like you said, it becomes a little bit more desperate, like those those neighbors of yours that had the garage. And she wants to, that aunt wants to make money too, right? That aunt wants money, right. Of course. But when we talk about who is targeted, who the mark is here. So at the level of trying to recruit people, it's going to be the people that are already around you. So your friends, your family, the people that are most easily accessible, of course, you're not going out and going door to door like the old days. But these are things that products that you believe in, products that you have learned about. You probably sat through some seminars and you want to share all of that good knowledge with. So those are the people that you at least are trying to sell to first, probably. But then you need to get people underneath you. And there's a lot of push for that. So those are going to be the folks that you try to recruit in your downline are those that are closest to you. And the reason that it works and the reason that not only are they just accessible and available to you, but that trust and loyalty is already built in. So when you're saying these things, they're going to trust you. Well, what you're talking about goes back to the root of a con man. It means confidence. And who are you going to have more confidence in? You're going to have confidence in your family members or not. <laughs> like it well, could work against you in some is, way. Right. right. But yeah. the idea is that you're not taking, you're not swindling some stupid person. You are taking an intelligent person into your confidence, which, you know, just to, to give a wild example of that in the whole Theranos case, mm-hmm. you know, many of her investors turned on family members. How dare you speak this way about Elizabeth Holmes? Yeah. She knows what she's doing. And there would be that poor young man going, no, grandpa, she does not know what she's doing. I went to school for this. It's not possible. Yeah. But she had already conned these people into believing it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that loyalty is built in, especially with your first few customers, you might not be totally confident what you're doing. So You don't need to be over the top or have every selling point because your family members trust you. So they're like, okay, it's working for you. Cool. Enough said, sign me up for some. Right. Um, But it's also about that person that is potentially, um, what do we want to call them? I'm going to call them consultants because that's like what I hear most often. Somebody who's selling for the company. Um, But There has to be something in it for them, something that's fulfilling for them as well, not just financially whenever we get into a new job or something that we want to put our time and effort into. It usually fills some other needs. And as a cognitive behavioral psychologist, that's what I'm constantly looking at. Like what need is being met by this behavior that you're starting to engage in? And it hits a lot of things for the population of generally moms, women who either want to make more money on the side of their other job that they're already doing. Because I know plenty of professional women, doctors, you name it, that are doing some of this on the side. But really, we're looking at who's the person that needs to contribute to the family, 
and has limited ways of being able to do that because of scheduling and family life and all of the other stuff that is deeply important to them. So it can bring a real sense of empowerment to people that are in those situations. I get to, well, I'm being promised that I'm going to get to kind of make my own hours, do this maybe after my family has gone to sleep. I can do a lot of it during the day on the computer. It's not like I have to go to an office, get any of this done. So feeling empowered maybe when they haven't had their own sort of thing. We, we can talk a lot about this sort of loss of sense of self when you become a mother too. And in, in not everything you're doing when you're at home is for your family. And if you don't have that job to go to, that all starts to blend together. And sometimes you start to question like, who am I for just myself and not as part of this family unit? But also a, a sense of contributing to the family of, I want to financially contribute to this family on top of all the other things that I'm doing to contribute to the family that aren't financial. So it hits a lot of needs, the the confidence building, the sense of self, the you can do something that you love, something you're interested in. If you like beauty, if you like skincare, if you're thinking it's kind of cool to be a, some sort of beauty consultant and make other women feel good about themselves, why wouldn't you want to be a part of something like that? And it can fit in with what your life is already. You know, there's a lot where it looks super glossy and shiny on the outside. I do know people who are good at this and make it work for them. But to be honest, the ones that do make it work don't have a lot writing on it. It is absolutely a side hustle that they can kind of put as much effort into it as they want to. And it's not like some of these really tragic, sad stories that they talk about in the dream where they're just trying to pay for the headstone of like a family member and they need right. money, you know? Right. So it's it's very interesting how it works out in, in the real world, but it can serve a lot of purposes to people or what they think it's going to serve, what it's going to give them back and what it's promising them. So I think the targets are pretty clear when these companies are setting out to say, hey, this is something that packaged looks really good, sounds really good, and we can get a shit ton of people on board. And it's meeting the needs of these individuals, but then probably falling short for a lot of them because there's also the sense of having a social network. At a certain age, I'm sorry, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, it's hard to make new friends. <laughs> I deal that with clients all the time. Like, yeah. hey, your social network is very small. You need more people to rely on for your resiliency and for your coping. It's hard. Like, where do you meet new friends at a certain well, age? Right. We're not, you and I are not in the, our families spend time with each other. And then we have other sort of satellite people that come and go out of our get togethers and things. Mm -hmm. If I was stripped of that, starting over at the age I'm at would be really difficult. And, it, you know, sometimes it is, you know, you have to empathize with your clients because they'll come in and go, okay, well, I've had my nose to the grindstone for 20 years, making sure my career's in place. And now I don't really have a circle. How do I start that? And it's, right. it's a real process because it, it takes you know, time. <laughs> right. Hard. And there's a lot of people like, you know, by the time you get to be a certain age, you are settled into your lifestyle and like meeting new people. I think we kind of go back to tribal slash biological imperatives of like keeping yourself safe and you want to be careful of new people coming in, but you're absolutely right. And that's why it's also 
more dangerous in this phenomenon of MLM and pyramid schemes is that they are many of them stemming from religious belief systems and even full-on churches. The Mormon church is really, really rife with MLMs throughout the U.S. And now I will say this for the Mormon church, their social network system is already strongly um, built in. But for women that don't have that, you hear these people saying, you know, these quotes in the documentaries talking about how much they love their sisters. Yeah. Yeah. Their their teammates or whatever the term is, like this is my team. They break down in tears, like because they're in a they're all in the same boat together. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's like there's a unity and a, a friendship that comes from that that is very potent. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that is something that is very strong with women and um can be just a huge pull, especially when you do have like little kids and you're like, God damn it, I just need some adult time. Yeah. <laughs> and if that's talking about how I'm going to strategize to have a party to sell this stuff, then great. And then, you know, your your upline person takes you guys all for a spa day. Like it, it sounds kind of great if that's your jam, not mine. I'd rather, I don't know, go shooting or something like that. <laughs> but you should start um, an, but yeah. you should start a pyramid scheme for <gasps> gun range. How could you oh let's, let's figure out you could do that. <laughs> but yeah, that that's definitely a huge need that is being filled here too. I think that we can't leave out of here. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. And the way that social media has impacted this, I think is just so fascinating. I mean, we've talked about off the top how a chain letter can now be a chain post, but you don't really even have to have a party if you don't want to be in person. You can literally just sell from the internet, from social media, and do a live stream and put in all the sales techniques that you can and sell the crap out of the stock that you have. And this, again, was something that was illustrated very nicely in the Lula Rich documentary where they're literally like, hey, I have one pair left of these medium leggings with donuts on the crotch or whatever. <laughs> like, who wants them? And then they would be sold. You know, it's it's interesting how, you know, that can be a platform for selling, but then it's also the platform for pumping each other up and having this networking and having a place to sort of meet. And that's a big thing now, right? There's there's a Facebook group for anything, for any interest. You don't even have to go to a meetup group anymore. You can sit behind your laptop and talk with people about things that you have right. in common. And I think there is something also enticing. I don't have any research or haven't heard this talked about much anywhere else, but something enticing about feeling like you're an influencer too, because that is such a new thing and a trend and something that, you know, like a younger generation is doing and like 
oh, I can get on here and I can talk to my people and I can sell things on the side too. And I thought that was pretty evident and interesting in the ways in in the Lula Rich documentary and what they do at LulaRoe where they wanted women to very much curate their online persona to be a certain way and everything, every good thing that is happening in their life that they wanted that to be known that it was because of Lula Rich or Lula Row. Yeah. So literally there was the hashtag because of LLR was on there or because of Lula Row. So you could get other people to be envious of, they said like your new Kate Spade bag. I mean, okay. Or, or even if that would be direct, because that's a that's something you'd be able to buy because you made money in the organization. Right. But there were even examples of the husband's accomplishment or the kid's accomplishment. Well, you got to frame it as because yeah. of LuLaRoe. Because I was able to alleviate some of the stress from my husband. He was able to go out and then invent a new rocket or, you know, something crazy <laughs> right. like that. Win this golf tournament or we're on this vacation. But then it went even further than that. I mean, there was... The emphasis on making sure you are camera ready when you're taking pictures of yourself and putting it out there and sort of being a visual representative of the organization. So much so to where, you know, there was this body shaming aspect of it where women were being approached, where that in its own right felt like a weird pyramid scheme that they were bringing all these women to the same doctor in Mexico. Yeah, I don't nec- I don't necessarily think that it was a pyramid scheme for that. I think that that was more a narcissistic projection of the owners of LuLaRoe, that she, being drunk with power, wants to surround herself with people that she feels are reflections of her. So she's a blonde, older woman, looks very nice, got a lot of money to invest in looking nice. And now she's surrounded by primarily blonde women with the same body shape as her that she now shames into having weight loss surgery. Right. I mean, that's pretty textbook narcissism and projection and, and also just shaming people. Like if you're not doing this, you, you got to get this done. You got to, you have to do this. It never ceases to amaze me. The lack of insight that narcissistic projection like that has, like mm-hmm. they just are not seeing the problems in what they're doing, what they're saying to people and how quickly they move from this sweet mom and dad type character into shaming people of, if you're lazy, then it's your fault. If these things aren't happening, you are responsible, you're responsible. When the original message was like, hey, just do this part-time if you want to. Relax, have fun. And now they're just sticking their faces in the camera. It's very creepy. Berating people. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think she was getting a kickback from the doctor for every person she brought down there? Maybe. Come on. Come Maybe. on. Oh, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Putting people on planes to get down there? I absolutely think so. So, you know, that kind of covers, I think, MLM and sort of who is the target there. And of course, we, we're we going to get there. We're going to go back and sort of compare and contrast this to how cults do the same thing to recruit members. But Scott, are there any MLMs that are men-centered or focus on male products yes but but they've come and gone there are a couple that are still here but they're most of them have come and gone there was one called man cave that was (laughs) there i don't even know what they did but they're they're gone i think the important thing to remember here is that mlm founders and executives are primarily and predominantly male you don't say and their and their targets are primarily women 
But, and there's a great, I mean, I encourage people to go to Reddit. There's so much great posting there. Martian Milk points out, and this is a quote from him, most MLMs are aimed at poorly educated women who can't or won't enter the full-time workforce, usually because of lack of childcare or family support. They appeal to their need for socialization and provide an appearance of agency and power that is very seductive. I think that's really beautiful. I don't think that he is making a marginalized, and I don't even know it's a man or a woman who Martian Milk is, but I don't think that they're making a marginalizing statement about women. I think that they're just calling out what the demographic, the target demographic is Mm -hmm. for these victims. So I think when we talk about men being involved in MLMs, men are less likely to feel isolated and powerless in certain ways within the financial world. I said less likely, it doesn't mean always. And scams aimed at them tend to focus on really just pure money or greed. And an example of that would be cryptocurrency because (laughs) cryptocurrency, we call it magic beans here. People are seeing it as legitimate investment and, and guys are always talking about it. And when you ask them, it's interesting. Most of them don't know exactly what it is. So that's why I call it magic beans. Now, this is a generalized statement because we know working in the mental health field that we can't forget that a very high portion of males feel isolated and powerless, likely due to many bullet points within the topic of toxic masculinity. Like men generally have a poor emotional vocabulary. They're not even able to really describe the emotions that they're feeling because that's not that's not a vocabulary that they use. That's not a, a method of transaction that they use. Men generally lack encouragement, guidance, and mentorship in utilizing emotion-based authenticity and communication. We really don't structure that very well. I think there is a big change in fathering in the last 20 years that is changing that slowly. But we're talking about, you can go to some areas of the country where that is definitely not happening. Yeah. I mean, if you're traditionally, you're not encouraged to use those kinds of ways to express yourself or to move through the world, then how are you going to even know what to label that? Exactly. And that's alexithymia, right? Is what we... Alex, Alexithymia. Alexithymia. Yeah. And they also have few emotional outlets. It's like, right. what, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to go out and get on the barbecue and smoke some meat in the middle of winter, you know, <laughs> or I'm going to go to the axe throwing place. And then we also just really culturally have a very narrow focus on the definitions of adult responsibility and male role norms. So all of these things, these these sort of four or five points really illustrate why that you can't really pull men into it for the socialization needs that women have because men don't really have a great facility for interacting in that way to begin with. Again, making a generalization, but that's just wanted to give that as a foundation as we move into the ones that are primarily male, interestingly enough, Amway, which at times has been more gender neutral, mm-hmm. constantly vacillates back and forth, whether it's male or female dominated. Man Cave is no longer around. Herbalife was primarily male. Herbalife okay. was like the supplements. And right now, the big one that I could find was called Advocare, and it focuses on nutritional and bodybuilding supplements. And it's very big in the military. And because think about it, like fundamentalist communities, military is going to have a bunch of maybe somewhat naive in this way, young soldiers Mm -hmm. that would be that, you know, maybe are very interested in staying fit 
And they're pulled into this scheme of sort of second tier quality stuff that you could probably buy higher quality off Amazon for a lot less money. So there was a really great when you wanted to get to the point where we compare and contrast this with a cult. So interestingly enough, like the commonality here is that the people generally running cults and MLMs are men, right? Yes. Leave it up to guys, okay? Yes. There was a great stats professor off of Reddit, and they had looked at the 2020 Young Living Income Disclosure. And this is what the professor said. I was wrapping up a unit on statistics, logical fallacies, and cognitive biases in psychology. All my students were learning all the tools they need to spot bias when analyzing studies. It's a good pedagogy to apply learning to real-life situations. So I had the kids analyze Young Living as if they were being recruited. They wrote down all the cognitive biases and logical errors they found on the website. They then did the math on the income disclosure. They were immediately tossing around the words pyramid scheme before we even got to the income disclosure sheet. Oh, wow. So (laughs) interesting. Yeah, yeah. So now, quick definition of a cult. I mean, we've been throwing that around for three and a half years from our first episode. (laughs) It's a group of people or a movement with a high level of commitment that share an extreme ideology, usually with a leader. So there may be some extreme ideologies where the leaders are dispersed across the country, across the world, without a main one calling the shots. They themselves may break off into subpopulations of a cult with sort of a shared ideology, but there's not just one person running the whole show. In these setups, in these cults, these organizations, there's very, very little tolerance for straying from the norms, for disobedience to sometimes even, sometimes rather stringent rules bordering on slave labor or harm. They use systems of formal and informal monitoring in order to keep obedience and keep members in line. And you pulled some interesting stuff from Dr. Yanya Lalik that cult leaders generally have that authoritarian or charismatic leader, the person who starts it and defines what people will get out of it. They might get enlightenment. They might get financial success. They might get professional success. Any or all of that, or even just, no, we're going to live with no clothes in the desert, but you're going to get spiritual enlightenment. Even something like that will get followers. And it's also what they'd call like a transcendent belief system. And that is that explains everything. This It's a system that you're being offered. Hey, I have some knowledge. I'm going to help you make sense of your world in a new way so that everything makes sense. All this confusion you've had in the past, I've got all the answers for it. And This is the point that when last year, early last year, last spring, when we were talking about QAnon, is that as crazy as the world was back then with the pandemic just starting and the political fears and all the craziness, people were drawn to QAnon because it made sense of the world in a freaking crazy, bizarre crazy way. way. Well, but it and, kind of explained everything to where they could go, oh, okay. yes, Yes, because during periods of unrest, during troubled times, that's when conspiracy theories and cults really tend to blossom. It's because here is someone or something that's offering an ordered sense of the world around them. So the structure of control and influence that reinforces all these behaviors and thought patterns 
and peer pressure and consequences, the, everything is all woven together. That for many people provides a sense of support. I mean, in a way, children may stomp their feet and want to stay up late at night and eat a bunch of garbage and do what they want to do from age three on. But kids also really prosper and feel much more safe when their parents hold strong boundaries with them because they know they are innately safe by having these boundaries around them. And there is something of that as adults that have found this unsafeness or they have been told that they are unsafe. And by the way, I've just told you how unsafe you are. I've also got the answer for it. So stay here in my cult as well. Yeah. There appears to be many cults that have this typical and familiar pattern that is like a slow escalation of indoctrination that then very quickly spins up as the narcissistic cult leader amasses a lot of power and realizes that power. Mm. So Jim Jones was always a weirdo, but he was... <laughs> opening a church in San Francisco that had people from all races and was loving and accepting and he was loved. And then of course it all went horribly, horribly wrong. I can't help but draw a parallel between the owners of LuLaRoe because they started out so nice. And even in the documentary, they just present so well. She's just so damn friendly. Oh, they they're just adorable. Care. They just want people to succeed. And then Three episodes in, you're seeing them saying just awful things yeah. about people, calling them whiners, calling like, who does that? What company owner calls their employees whiners? Well, and that's the other thing is like, if it was a legit business, you would probably have some sort of protection or you could file a lawsuit for a lot of the things that right. they get away with. But they fall in between those cracks where you don't really have a lot of rights right. because it's ultimately it's your own business, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And you you die or thrive based on the work that you do, right. which is another sort of expression of Protestant work ethic that your worth as an individual is based on how hard you work. And gosh, you might have just worked yourself into an early grave with a massive coronary, but hey, you worked really hard, so you were a good person. Eee, that's really bad. I know. I want to step away from, I know we're kind of, people probably feel like we're moving away from it, and I promise we're getting towards it, but to step away from sort of what we think of as like dangerous cults and just talk about culture, kind of groups and subculture real quick. I talk about subculture all the time when I'm teaching to law enforcement, especially when we look at like our in-groups that we contribute to and, you know, what is healthy us versus them thinking, some of those concepts that come up in policing. But this is something that we all do. We all have an in-group. We all are probably part of an out, outside of other people's in-groups. And we judge people in various subcultures. So everybody does this, whether you know, someone comes in and talks about being a CrossFitter and you roll your eyes or, oh, I'm a vegan. And then you, you know, roll your eyes or, oh my God, you know, there's Disney fanatics out there. We're part of a subculture too. Think about the list just goes on and on. Think about what in groups you belong to and what is special and unique about that. And for a lot of us, it is a social belonging piece to it. You know, it might be health or fitness 
or I just want to go to a place that is fun and makes me forget about the world. But then you connect with people who want that too, and you form your own little subgroups. Cultures and subcultures have their own traditions, their own language, their own symbolism and structures. I have been very lucky to co-teach and collaborate on some projects with Dr. Sukhsimaran Singh out of Pepperdine University, and he is an expert in this area of culture and so beautifully describes all of these different components of culture that we can look at ourselves and say, oh yeah, I'm part of this subculture and here's what our weird lingo is and here's what our traditions are. And yeah, we do have symbols. When I have that annual pass holder decal magnet on the back of my car, all the other annual pass holders of Disneyland know what that is. (laughs) It's super, super interesting. I invite everyone to think about what subcultures they belong to. Maybe you think it's a true crime subculture, true crime edutainment, or however you want to put that. With LuLaRoe, we saw it with the term unicorn, that special pair of leggings that is limited edition, that is only going to be here for this period of time, that not everyone is going to get in their shipment, and that there's a lot of hype over is a unicorn pair of leggings. You know, that's not vernacular that we use in our daily life. So I think before we judge other people and what they belong to, we need to kind of look at ourselves a little bit. And then I was also thinking like, well, we also hear about things having cult followings. Like, what does that even mean? Like what rises to the level of a cult following? And really it's simply usually a piece of art, whether it's a film or um, a piece of music or a music group that has a really small but very, very dedicated fan base. So with that, there's an emotional attachment there. You feel like you're a part of a community if you're the one that goes to watch Rocky Horror Picture Show at the theater and knows every word and sings along and all of that on a monthly basis. Or like deadheads, um, people that traveled around the world totally. for years to see every Grateful Dead concert. Or I had a, a friend I worked with in movie production years ago when we were both production assistants, Liz. She was a Bruce Springsteen. Went, oh, gosh. Like, followed him, took two right. years off her life and went to every concert across the yeah, world. Yeah. Or if you're a person that goes to where Twin Peaks was filmed and takes a tour and then you get a tattoo on your body of... And the thing is sometimes about the art is sometimes that it's ironic because the art is so bad, it's good. And so it takes on that life of its own. And that's what people are really sort of coming together and celebrating. So this is just sort of a one-off thought of mine. So bear with me. But I thought there was really only one group or subculture that I could think of that has a number of specific secretive traditions that feel cult-like that actually doesn't fit the bill of a cult structure. And that's the Masons. And do you know why? No, but you've got my attention. What? Because their thing is that they don't recruit. You have to ask them about it. They will never tell anyone and try to get somebody into their organization. That's fascinating because I have 
now two acquaintances that are Masons. Uh-huh. And we all three of us have very different lives, very different lifestyles. But I would say that these are two of the coolest people I know. And that is exactly, they have never tried to recruit or anything. But like, if I have a question, they're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, well, this is, you know, this is what do we do? Like, this is going to affect where I go to move. I've got to make sure that the state I move to has, you know, a good a strong lodge, and- lodge that reflects ideals that I think are what the ideals of the Masons are supposed to be like. And yeah. Yeah. But talk about like tradition and symbolism and structure. I mean, very much so all of those things where people are like, ooh, what's really happening? But they don't recruit, which I, when I reflected on that, I thought that is kind of the neatest part about that and that they're not trying to shove this down someone's throat to where you're like, oh, what's the ulterior motive here? So we have absolutely covered how one might be targeted for an MLM, how somebody is targeted or is enticed into joining some sort of cult-like organization. Definitely, there has to be some sort of appeal for what that organization stands for. Like you were saying earlier, answers to several of life's problems is sort of wrapped up neatly in one answer. So for an MLM, that might be, you get to make money on your own terms, period. Sounds great, sign me up. For a more cult-like organization, it could be follow this lifestyle or what I tell you to do, and you will obtain the ultimate happiness and fulfillment. Also sounds great for what I need right now. Let's do it. So both usually have some sort of like where you're in, you're exposed to the success stories of the people that it's worked for, demonstrations of those people who have really reached top levels and succeeded, whether that's financially through an MLM or if that is reaching spiritual nirvana or some other type of success or enlightenment through a different type of cult. And then you have to look at the potential member. Where are they at in their life? Again, what need for someone in an MLM? It might be they're at a point where they're just desiring more which is a pretty vague statement and could fit to anyone that's looking for a new in-group. But they might need to also make financial ends meet, a loss of sense of self to a marriage, to children, to family, to age. And they have been less social, possibly due to other responsibilities. With a cult, a traditional cult, generally it's going to be a transitional time in that person's life. Societal turbulence breeds cults, as you said, as people seek new ways of thinking, new ways of living, new ways of being. And we've heard it time and time again with all these documentaries, right? Successful corporate lawyer, I am done with this rat race and bullshit, and I'm going to go live on a compound in Oregon or something. So it just depends where they're at. However, idealists are particularly at risk. You know, these are people who generally want to make the world a better place. There's nothing problematic with that in and of itself. It's just that some of these organizations can feel like they have the answer to that. Right. Um, But I would say it's also idealists that have a little bit of narcissism that they're not questioning or using critical thinking about their own thinking process. Right. Which is really an adult 
and mm-hmm. metacognition level, I am going to think about thinking. I'm going to criticize my thinking. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that I have. I come across as having altruism and care for the world, but anybody that believes they have the problem and they're going to be able to do it through this organization, like that's an issue that I wish was addressed more. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that would be very beneficial to a lot of folks to be able to create those skills, but they are also perfect targets to be exploited. Absolutely. And then we talked about social needs not being met. So people who are in a particular place where they're lonely or they have this desire for meaning and making this really can make people susceptible to the influence of other people who seem to have all that, who seem to be really happy and have this brother and sisterhood and connection beyond maybe what they've ever known in their life. And And it's just an answer for everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it. And this can take months, right? It's subtle, take a lot of time. Again, you're usually introduced to the cult, the organization by someone you know and trust generally. And just as human beings, we want to belong to a group. The majority of us, it's just an innate piece of us. Like you said, it's tribal that we want to be part of a group and we want to belong. And it's not, I I know they say this over and over again with all the attention that's been brought on, but we are not talking about weak-minded, lazy individuals. No, not at all. Generally, these organizations, be it an MLM or a true (laughs) cult, they want someone who's type A, someone who's driven. They want someone who can teach, who can recruit new people because there always has to be backfill of either people to make sales or people to keep the movement going. So the lazy, weak-minded person is actually not who they're so interested in. It's just who can be exploited for where they're at in their life. Super Great example of that is in Wild Country, the Maharishi's second-in-command was very type A and basically was running the whole show. Yeah, sure. that's who you want. So, but let's talk a little bit about the psych issues that can affect even our most brilliant and our brightest. As we mentioned earlier, this is really, MLMs thrive on cognitive distortions. And I I, I hope that this is the part that's educational for people that are listening, because we're going to take the definition of cognitive distortions and kind of turn it on its head so that we can understand how insidious they can be in our lives, in the lives of the people that we love, and how that can make you a victim of something like an MLM or even a cult. So cognitive distortions are habitual ways of thinking that are often inaccurate, wildly inaccurate, and negatively biased for the most part. Once again, for the most part, negatively biased. However, we're going to flip it for this example. Cognitive distortions usually develop over time in response to adverse events. So there are at least 10 really common distorted thinking patterns that have always been identified by research. So in our psych literature, we almost always focus on cognitive distortions as being like Stuart Smalley would have said, stinking thinking Mm -hmm. or negative self-talk, negative aspects of the thinking process and how we think about ourselves and feel about ourselves. Now, in the phenomenon of MLMs, the cognitive distortion gives the individual a wildly 
skewed belief of what is possible despite ample evidence to the contrary. You see all the shaming videos, read anything on Reddit, just dive below the second Google page and you will yeah. find plenty of people that are like, this is a scam, it doesn't work, or yeah, it kind of works, but this is the cost, it's not how it was sold to me. Look, research on cognitive distortions indicate that they develop as a way of coping with adverse life events. In the MLM world, it looks like money is the primary motivator, particularly with the extraordinary exploitation of lower income populations. The more prolonged and severe those adverse events are, the more likely is that one or more cognitive distortions will form. One theory implies that we as humans may have developed cognitive distortions as a kind of evolutionary survival method. So it puts you into a place of black and white or polarized thinking that will make you be aware of danger that might actually exist. So you, in this way, this polarized thinking, you either believe that you're destined for success or you're doomed for failure. And many Many people have often said that America is a culture of failed millionaires. So everybody thinks that we're just one step away from winning the lottery, like it's been promised to us, which is really not how Europeans look at it at all. Like, and even Scandinavians have a much, much different view of Higgy, of like life contentment that is not driven by this crazy, bizarre version of capitalism. So, I think it's look, pronounced Hige. Hige? I thought it was Higgy. <laughs> Thank you. I had never known that. Like, I, I love it. I, I love the term. I actually like Higgy better, but thank you for the Higgy's correct. adorable. And I was like, what the frick is he talking about? I was like, thank oh, you. Hige. Being no, like, thank you. And I'm and not going to edit that out to make myself <laughs> look smart. I'm going to... I'm going to sit in the distress of not being a know-it-all in this moment. And I love correction. you for that. <laughs> but look, you know... You know, for people who have either traits or actual diagnosable personality disorders, black and white thinking can be a very big problem. Because if you walk through life where you see everybody as either an idealized angel or just a horrible devil, then you're going to have a really hard time in life because people encompass an entire spectrum of presentations and affects and emotional identity. Some Very bad people occasionally do good things for certain reasons. Some very good people do bad things. And there's an infinite level of gray or span of gray in between those two um, settings there. So what I'm not saying clearly, and I want to be very clear, I'm not saying that individuals who engage in MLMs have a personality disorder. I want to be very clear about that. I'm talking about these individuals are falling prey to thinking patterns that are damaging in the long run. So first one we would have is overgeneralization. That's the first cognitive distortion. It's when people engage in overgeneralizing, they tend to come to a conclusion about one singular event, and then they incorrectly apply that end game conclusion across the board to all events. So where a person who says, oh, this is never going to work for me, the opposite is like framing everything in a positive light, which we have a term now, which I really love, which is toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. We have way too much toxic positivity and it's huge in MLM. I mean, it's just constantly oh, thrown at people. 
So let's look at examples of negative statements that are clearly unhelpful. So I, I have the worst luck in the world. I just failed this science exam. I suck at school. It's bullshit. I can't hack it. I might as well quit. I haven't seen that mole before. Oh my God, it's cancer. It has to be I'm dying. Okay, so those would be the negative versions. But if we were to flip that into overgeneralization and making it toxic positivity, it would be, you know, I have the best luck all the time. Nothing's going to go wrong. I don't have uh-huh. to worry about this at all. You know, I've never really been interested in chemistry or biology, but, you know, I'm going to make an excellent doctor. So I think I'm just going to head towards med school. Great. Or, hmm, you know, that mole has gotten larger and the edges aren't even and part of it's raised, but you know what? It's fine. Nothing like that's going to happen to me. That's me. You're the first one. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> so, it, you know, what we're looking at is the converse reflection of negative polarized thinking that's fed by all these MLM doctrines that it's all going to be easy. And we all fall prey to cognitive distortions, but MLMs really victimize people in this way. Because they reinforce it. It's part of what you're thinking should be so you don't fail. You can't fail. It's, It's just shoved down your throat to where it becomes your thinking pattern. Much like we talk about positive affirmations, right? Okay, just say the words and then eventually you'll start to believe it. It's, can you imagine if you were just in Facebook groups about this again, like that echo chamber online and you're just seeing these mantras and you're being told these in training scenarios and being berated and made to feel bad when you aren't doing as well. Yes. That's, I'm so glad you said that because the shame then only reinforces not looking at the reality of what's going on. So you're already kind of putting the reality and critical thinking on the back shelf and then someone shaming you for you're not working hard enough, you're lazy or you're dumb. I mean, they've even, you know, called people stupid for not being able to make a success out of it. So of course, we're going to do everything we can to avoid that. You assume that because you've had a good month, all of your other months are going to work out the same, which is mathematically impossible. It Mm. cannot work. So generalizing across the board of, well, my downline did really well this month and their reps are making money. So I can just assume that I'm going to have this level of income every month. And every example we see in the documentaries shows that many of the most successful people made a lot of money up front. And then as it titrated down and averaged out, it ended up being less than you would make from working a regular part-time job. Well, and by then they've already started to live a lifestyle beyond the means that's sustainable, which is really where the collapse was for them personally, either having a bigger house or spending more money on stuff. And like you said, they just didn't project that that wouldn't happen month after month. Well, and this look, if any of these people on the documentary are listening to this, I I do not mean this in a shameful way. I just want to point out that you know, anytime you're making a financial plan for your future, you don't spend money you don't have. And the idea that you can buy a McMansion and two big SUVs as if that's going to be sustained, you were sold a bill of goods Mm -hmm. that was not true. And that is why these people are being victimized. Yes. The Dream does a great job illustrating all of this when they speak to former MLMers about their experiences. And then they even go on to reveal that many mid-level upliners we're ending up purchasing product on credit cards under the name of their downliners so that they wouldn't lose their standing in the organization. So once again, shame and the yeah. possibility of failure wrapped in with toxic positivity has just got these people, these retailers in a vicious cycle of just trying to keep up. So 
the last one that I just wanted to mention before we move on is discounting the negative. So discounting the negative is the flip side of discounting the positive. Most of the time when I'm working with clients, they discount the positive all the time. I mean, you work cognitive behaviorally. I work cognitive behaviorally, but in a theoretical orientation of what's called narrative. So what is the story of your life? And many times what we do is we find people are really stuck in the problem-saturated narrative of their life. Like, they can't take credit for any wonderful thing or even any moderate thing that's happened because they're still stuck in this these areas of trauma and pain that they've been living with for years. And we work hard to reorient them. But in this, people are discounting the negative. Like, yes, I'm having to put $2,000 on my credit card every month. Yes, I'm having to hide it from my husband. Yes, I'm not actually got money coming in. They just discount it over and over and over again. So... Well, it's it comes... It falls under this new area that I paid attention to way more with a lot of the clientele that I see now, which is financial wellness. Oh, yeah. And I feel, you know, I had never until a few years ago really thought of that as an area of wellness, but it's part education, but it's also not feeling so much shame that you can have these conversations, that you can talk to your partners and your family about because it's an area that we just is so uncomfortable, even within your own family, where couples and families are devastated by financial choices that one member has made that has been completely shrouded in secrecy. And if you can free yourself from that if you need to get back on track or need to start making plans or start educating yourselves. And I've absolutely had to do that later in life. You know, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm adulting now that I have this financial thing in place or that. And it's so relieving. It's just a very interesting part of uh, wellness, I think, is financial. Right. And, you know, we're in an economic situation in our country right now where a very large portion of our population is expected to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, get their shit together, and put their kids through college and have a good job when the numbers, much like the MLM phenomenon, they just don't bear out. It's like you can't you can't do that if you're working a minimum wage job in many states. And even if we raise, I mean, we're bitching about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and most people won't do the math, that $15 dollars an hour comes to what 32,000 a year. You can't get a two bedroom apartment for that anywhere sure. in the US. You, you I mean so we've got right. this sort of pyramid system that's kind of at play in our <laughs> in our country's economics as well, which is a big deal that we, you know, a lot of people are just not aware of. I don't even want to say educated because how can you even become aware of it if you're just fighting every day to put food on the table? Or it's just such a new concept. Like I was I was talking to a detective the other day. She's about to retire. So she's done 25, 30 years on the job. Great pension, stuck with it. And her 21-year-old son has a YouTube channel and makes more than she does. And she's like, what? Like, this is blowing my mind. Just like, what are, what are people... But that's quote, overgeneralization. Unquote, he is one of the ones that is making money. There is yep. no guarantee that he will continue to make it. I have a really good friend who's a therapist. Her son is an Instagrammer and uh-huh. he was doing great until he wasn't. Yeah. And the pressure of constantly having to generate content. You know, so what she's doing right there is she's generalizing like, why did I do it? I could have been a YouTube star. 
Yeah. I mean, which I think they're not really like sold on that. It's just like, wow, things can be so different. Not that they are, but they can. Right. And I think that plays into what we're talking about, the tie-in of social media with MLMs because, oh, here's my chance. Like I can't be a YouTuber. I'm I'm not like a gamer or whatever. It's going to put my tips up on uh, YouTube and get a million views, but I can do this and make a little bit of money. And it's, I don't know, very interesting (laughs) sociologically. Yes. So there's this other thing that's a, find some commonality between cults. I think it's more strongly or more predominant in cults than it would be in MLMs. But we use the term thought reform, which is also known as brainwashing or bounded choice, which Dr. Yanya Lalik uh, uses that term. And she says it's a deep re-socialization into the ideology of the thinker or the group that changes who you are and how you think. Her theory explains how a cult member becomes more involved in the organization that there's little outside influence or relationships or they slowly get cut away or edited out as you're loved bombed by that organization. And certainly we see examples of that in MLMs, the love bombing. But I think it's actually meant. I mean, I don't necessarily think that's part of the the indoctrination as much as it is like, oh, this is one of my team members. This is one of my sisters. I want to I be successful. I want her to be successful as well. Yeah. But- and I I think, you know, when we hear brainwashing, we're like, okay, that's pretty extreme. Right. And it can be extreme, certainly with some extreme dangerous cults. But look at how in Lula Rich, how there was this re-socialization in terms of, oh, get your husband into the business. Now your family is completely dependent on it because you have both parties in the business. And plus the whole, you know, hype around the the socials and the conference and yeah. just insulating yourself into this one organization. That particular thing is really disturbing and not for the reasons that people think of like, oh, why would a guy be selling leggings? It's not about that. But the push to get everybody in the family engaged, get the husband and wife is really reminiscent of what used to happen in our country at the turn of the century, which was the coal company towns or mining towns. So there'd be a a mining company would move in and they would hit a vein and they would build an entire city where people live. Look, we're providing you with housing, but because you're working so hard, you can only pay for your housing there and you go to the company store. So Mm. all of that money, everything is being, is recycled back into the earnings of the company. And they have you by the neck because well, where are you going to move? You've got no money because your money's in the company bank and on the company grounds and you bought your food from the company store and you live in a company house. Your kid goes to the company school. It's, and it's which a is a very real, interesting comparison. Yeah. And there's actually some, some controversy right now because Amazon is proposing those kind of communities as well, like Amazon huh. communities. So anyway, don't want to digress yeah. too far from that. No, but I, you know, they're essentially what they're doing is making you more reliant on the organization for this social belonging piece. And what is that going to do when you are considering leaving or if things aren't working, your network, your entire social support system is based on these individuals and the next level of individuals above that and above that and above that. And this is really where shame comes in because 
Can you imagine like being one of the first ones to voice that or to say that you don't think this is working out? It's just like what we see in cults when that first person starts questioning and starts bringing up things that aren't making sense. And then eventually when they leave, they have to like be extracted and completely detach. Or as in the case of Jim Jones, if you can even leave. I mean, he started shooting people if they tried to leave. Right, right. So shame is, we've talked about it over and over again, this podcast of what a powerful emotion it is. I think it's incredibly powerful in men and I see them suffer over it more than anything else. And it's it's just, it's awful that it's used in this way because it probably makes people stay a lot longer than they would have. If you're also, if you're thinking like, well, I got my friends and family into this, like I sold them this bill of goods and now I'm feeling like I want to get out. What are they going to think of me? Yeah. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. I mean, we see today how cult movements are not happening in traditional means. They, they don't have to. They don't have to recruit the way they used to. They've got now online ways of doing that. A cult movement can get started through social media, even without a, a single charismatic leader. Like you were talking about before, happened with QAnon mm-hmm. and which cult experts and researchers, they absolutely consider QAnon a cult. Encouraging members to go out and act on the outside world is an evolution from only hurting members to recruiting fast political pandemic growth. So that happened with QAnon. It ran wild and people started acting on their own and interpreting these murky predictions and cue drops into sort of what their belief system pretty much was already primed to be. Uh And for many people it gave them a too-good-to-be-true answer for all of their issues. Like we were talking about before, it gave an answer for the pandemic, for election results. People are feeling out of control because they've been fed a diet for a very long time. They have divested themselves of critical thinking, and here we are. Yeah. Yes, here we are. Wow. I, I just wanted to mention one more psychological tactic that... I really took notice of in the Lula Rich documentary. And we've mentioned it before when I think a couple of times we're talking about crisis negotiations. And then we were talking about our con men because it's all about influencing behavior. And a lot of the same techniques are done and are used in sales. Salespeople are fantastic at this to to change attitudes that then leads to differences in behavior hopefully in getting them to buy what you want them to buy. But that's the scarcity effect. And it's the idea of somebody wanting something more because there's a limited quantity of it. Once it's gone, it's gone. You know, these unicorn leggings, it's very effective in making people want something, right? We all rush out to buy our pumpkin spice lattes (laughs) that first day because we're like, oh shit. Fall season comes around every year. <laughs> it's 90 degrees out, but I'm going to go get my But I'm going to go get it <laughs> because it's here for a limited time. It's a shame how much, you know, that is used and it works. It's very successful. I know when uh, Rodan and Fields are like, oh, we have our travel sizes of our skincare stuff. They don't do it all the time. I buy that shit up. So I am absolutely influenced by that. But scarcity effect is really interesting. And crisis negotiations, it's usually scarcity of time. We're like, all right, the SWAT team is telling me that if 
I don't talk you out of this house. They're coming in. <laughs> so yeah. you got limited time, buddy. Yeah. Um, and we shame. call it playing you know, hardball. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah. And, and when that's the right time to do it, that is usually what's going to, it's going to work. I mean, it, yep. it's the only option left. Yeah. And looping back around, it's, it comes to this sense of shame of like, sure. once again, the fear of missing out is what got you into this. And now the fear of not being able to keep up is what keeps you in mm. when it should be. People should feel not shame. There is no failure. It's like every, every chance that doesn't work out is an opportunity for learning and growth. And if we could instill that in everyone you know, this is a chance to learn. Okay, maybe you're not so great at direct sales. Maybe your talents lie in other ways that you can make a good income. Yeah. Let's let's explore that. I did want to give examples of MLMs in media that I think are really hilariously done, creatively <laughs> done. There's certainly Michael's birthday, the office episode. It's a it's actually the cold <laughs> opening. It's not this, yes. it's not the the theme of the whole episode, but Michael is all excited about something that he's involved in. And Jim literally takes a, a marker and a whiteboard <laughs> and writes down everything Michael's saying of all the, the downlining. Right. And it's a whole stack of people and he draws a line around it. And Michael goes, oh my God, I'm in a pyramid scheme. <laughs> and he's which, the top sales guy. Yeah, which was really well illustrated. So <laughs> another one, which nobody's going to remember, but if you can find it, it's really worth seeing is a Twilight Zone episode from 1988 when they rebooted the show for a couple of years. Mimi Kennedy is an actress who's been around for years in television. She was played the hippie mom on Dharma and Greg, if anybody remembers oh, yeah. that show. But she plays a 40-year-old news anchor who's really rightfully worried because this is the way news works for women is she's afraid she's going to be replaced by someone younger. She is in a relationship with a guy that's 10 years younger than her, Mark. He's this really good-looking fashion photographer. He's totally in love with her. But she's so worried about losing him to any of the beautiful female models that he works with. So this is so 80s, like such an 80s storyline. I know, but it's so well done. I love it. So Christine has a colleague in the newsroom who is what we call a local color reporter. So she's out doing like the opening of this shop or look, this this charity is doing a fundraiser. And she's perky and, and attractive. Her name's Shauna. And she finds out that Shauna is 47 years old, but only looks 30. And she asks her, how do you do this? And she goes, oh, it's the wonderful secret. It's called Aqua Vita. It's bottled water. It's just wonderful. And she's like, I want some of that Aqua Vita. And she's like, oh, well, here, you like, I'm, let me get you in. You're, the first bottle for you is free. And I get a free bottle, too, for getting of somebody course. in. So this creepy salesman shows up and delivers this very weird, like, very skinny water dispenser like one big thing but it's one cup for 30 days so there's only okay. there's only 30 cups in there i'm sold by the way i'm sold right. <laughs> so she takes it goes to sleep wakes up and she looks like 15 years younger <gasps> and everybody's commenting on it or her, her boyfriend's like oh my gosh you look so great they go off on a romantic weekend i think up the coast of santa barbara or something and she wakes up in the middle of the night really thirsty and she goes into the bed and breakfast bathroom and she looks at herself in the mirror and she's aged 30 years oh my so now god she's actually older than she was so it's like this supernatural potion and then mark she drives back home won't let mark see her she goes in her apartment she's not letting him in and he goes to shauna's house and waits for the door to open when her water is being delivered and he sees that shauna has is actually really really old too 
So it's a multi-level marketing where you have to recruit other people in and then you pay like this astronomical amount in order to keep your supply coming. And if you can't pay for it, then you have to recruit someone. (gasps) That is super creepy. Yeah, It has a really sweet ending though. It was a really sweet ending. And then there's Superstore, which was a great sitcom. My two favorite characters are Cheyenne and Mateo. I'm telling the, the two of them together is comic genius. And she recruits him into an MLM telling him, oh, there's so much cash you make. And then, of course, the, the site gag is her pulling up with like literally a truckload of <laughs> low, low quality cosmetics. They then have to sell at the like she's selling it at the counter, but pocketing oh, no. the cash. Yeah. <laughs> and then a really interesting one was at the end of the show, the end of the series, Big Love, which was mm. about polygamy families in the Mormon community. And one of the characters has become involved in this pyramid scheme for goji juice. If anybody remembers goji juice, like a decade ago, it was like the new superfood. And the big debate is like when they figure out, well, like, how is our church really any different from a pyramid scheme? Oh, how interesting. Very, very interesting. I love that you put this piece in here because I hadn't, it didn't even cross my mind to put something entertainment related in here. And this morning... I turn on the TV and I'm like, okay, I need to watch something like Halloween. Okay, all this stuff is on. I'm going to go to Kuluween and see what they suggest. Oh, cool. And I was like, oh, I want to watch the Halloween episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I think it's from like 2018. But so I literally was watching this this morning and they have this heist competition every Halloween that they try to win this big, like, it looks like a belt that you would win if you were in a boxing tournament. Yes. And so they all are trying to dupe each other and all of that. Well, one of the detectives hires a lookalike to himself to try and pull off this heist. And the lookalike ends up being this consultant for some vitamin company. And everybody keeps offering to buy more of his products so that he will like unhandcuff them or do double cross the other person. Right. And he's always like, okay, you're handcuffed. I'll unhandcuff you, but let me just get the paperwork. It'll take just a minute. Let me... <laughs> and freaking Adam Sandberg is like, I'm at a presidential level now. What do you think about that? <laughs> but it's so important. To, like, that's funny because that competition is so important to them in the in the span of the show. Yeah, yeah. Every year. That's good. a great storyline. It's awesome. So how do we wrap this up? Well, I, I, again, always kind of sit back and look at behaviors and assess what's going on for individuals. Is this harmful? Is this problematic in any way? That's that's the bottom that's the bottom line for me. And for some people, I just really don't think that it is. However, I think for a large, very vulnerable majority, absolutely it's harmful in a number of ways that we've outlined today. Yeah. It's manipulative, it's sneaky, and it preys on people's insecurities. Like I said, I I have plenty of very close friends who have been a part of this. If it brings you joy, if it's meaningful, if it's not causing harm in any way, whether it be psychological or financial, have at it. Do do what you want to do and feel empowered enough to get out if you feel like you need to get out. But if it's doing harm to you that you can't deal with, if you're racking up debt and it's just not working out, then you have to recognize law of diminishing returns. You know, that's just... 
it's, I mean, this is a tough thing to say, but it's our responsibility as adults. You know, you got to be responsible to yourself, responsible to your family and not keep buying in thinking that you're going, this scratcher is going to be the one that makes me a millionaire. Right. Right. I loved this quote at the end of the Lula Rich documentary. He says, history will remember Lula Rowe as an unethical, immoral family. And then he goes on to quote General Martok from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which I'm sure you yeah, I completely totally know, what, love I know that. what quote you're going to use. And he says, because history is written by the victors. And I thought that was great. I would say also that there's other people that said that before they stuck it in a Deep Space Nine episode. There's actually some <laughs> famous writers, but we'll give General Martok the credit for it. I think he was the, Carta- the Cardassian alien. But yeah. What? He was a Kardashian? That's so crazy. Yes, there was an alien race called the Kardashians. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is fascinating stuff. People, please be careful. Be be careful if you have a friend that's getting into it. Express concern and like, hey, I don't want to rain on your parade. I want you to be empowered. But like, have you read this Reddit thread? You might want to read this Reddit thread. Yeah. That might yeah. be helpful, especially Definitely. before they start investing a lot of money. Yes, yes. So, so glad we covered that. We have some topics already spinning up for the next couple of months. So we'll have plenty to bring your way. We'll be doing Get Vocals again at the end of this month. So we look forward to seeing your faces and interacting with you guys a bit more in the future. I know we've taken a couple of weeks off, but we've been doing other things. Wait, I want to give a shot, a special shout out to my Optivia cult members, Jeff, Harry, and Anna, who I spent a lot of time with this week at training. You don't have to look it up, but I told them every single day they're in a cult. So. <laughs> well, now I have to go look. Go ahead. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate your holding out with us for this long episode. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. Take care. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.